if you're a fan of college football, you probably saw the video, the Kalen Clay video from a couple weeks ago. Seen that one? Okay, Kalen Clay plays for Utah. He's a 22-year-old wide receiver. And in a game against Oregon, he'd gone out for a, a pass, a long bomb from his quarterback. He caught it, raced into the end zone, a 79-yard touchdown, almost. It, it was almost a touchdown. See, one of the defenders from Oregon noticed that Kalen Clay had let go of the football before he crossed the goal line, and the football was sitting there on the one-yard line. So the Oregon defender raced over, picked it up, ran it back 99 yards the other way. So here's Kalen on the sideline cheering with his, you know, with his teammates and the referees stop the action and they review the play and they conclude that yes, he had begun his celebrating one yard too early. And so the, uh, the touchdown counted for Oregon who went on to win the game, came from behind, won the game. Poor Kalen. They, they say that millions of people, that was one of the most watched videos of a couple of weeks ago. Everybody saw him plummet from the peak of joy to the pit of despair in a matter of minutes. Well, welcome to the first installment of a six-week holiday series we're calling Killjoy. Killjoy. What are the killjoys in our lives? What are the things that rob us of joy? For most of us, it won't be dropping a football. Okay, it'll be attitudes, it'll be behaviors that keep us from experiencing true happiness. So today, our killjoy, the one we're talking about, is discontent. Discontent. Now, discontent comes in all shapes and sizes. You can be discontent about your job today. Probably some of us are there. You can be discontent about the size of your house or maybe the fact that you don't have a house, you're living in an apartment, or you can be discontent with how your kids are turning out, you can be discontent with Chicago's football team, a lot of us around, you can be discontent with the shape of your nose, or the last meal you had out at a restaurant, or your current holiday plans. I mean, what, what are you discontent about today? There are 101 ways to be discontent, and that discontent will rob you of joy. Discontent will rob you of joy. So what is the antidote for discontent? How can we banish this killjoy from our lives? We're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture in the New Testament book of Philippians. So I hope you brought a Bible. Would you turn with me to Philippians? It's only four chapters long, so you may have difficulty finding it. Get the outline from your program. Unless you are outrageously happy always, you need the sermon. Okay, so you want to jot down what God has to say to you from Philippians chapter 4. This is a good book of the New Testament to go to if you want to talk about joy, because it's the theme of Philippians. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote it, uses the word joy or rejoice 16 times in four short chapters. So it's all about joy, which is really amazing considering the fact that the Apostle Paul wrote this, this book from prison. Paul was in jail for having proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. If anybody ever had good reason to be discontent, it was Paul. So how did Paul resist giving in to discontent? Single word answer to that question is gratitude. Gratitude. Now, that's a good topic to park on the week before Thanksgiving, don't you think? Almost as if we planned it that way. 
Today we're going to learn how to cultivate gratitude in our lives because gratitude is the antidote to the killjoy of discontent. Four steps associated with gratitude that we're going to draw out of Philippians 4. Write these down. Number one, don't compare. Don't compare. Now, let me give you a little bit of historical background to the text in Philippians 4 that we're going to take a look at. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote many New Testament epistles, 13 of them, and he wrote them to Christ followers in various cities. In most cases, cities where he himself have, had visited, shared the good news of Christ, and started churches. So Philippi was one of those cities. Paul had a very close relationship with those people. Okay, if you know anything about, about the story, Acts chapter 16 uh, tells the story. You could read it on your own sometime. Paul had initially arrived in, in, in town uh, talking about Jesus. Some people had responded very positively to his preaching. There was a businesswoman by the name of Lydia who surrendered her life to Christ. She became the first Christ follower on the continent of Europe. Philippi is, uh, was in the ancient uh, ancient country of Greece. So the first Christ follower in Europe was Lydia. She was the, the member of the Philippian church that began to explode with growth. But other people did not appreciate what Paul had to say. Uh, one business guy in town in particular, he had a young female slave who was a fortune teller, and he was making money off of her. She, ha she had occultic powers that enabled her to tell the future. And she would follow Paul around, and she just badgered him. She heckled him until finally one day Paul turned around, and he rebuked the demonic spirit in her that gave her this fortune-telling ability. So the, the, the demon left her, but so did her power, which outraged her boss because she was now worthless, was not going to make him any money. So he brought Paul to court on trumped-up charges, and, and without looking into the story further, the magistrates threw Paul in prison. They stripped him, beat him, threw him in prison, locked his feet in stocks. It's an amazing story. I mean, that night Paul is singing praise to God at the top of his lungs because that's exactly what you and I would do, right, if we'd been beaten and thrown in prison. And there, there is an earthquake, and the jail cell doors are rattled open, and the jailer thinks Paul has probably escaped, but he says, no, I'm still here. And the jailer's so amazed, he says, what do I need to do to get this salvation you've been singing about all night? And Paul introduces him to Christ, and then the jailer takes him home and bathes his wounds, and Paul leads his whole, the jailer's whole family to Christ. Next morning, the magistrates finally wake up to the realization they put an innocent guy in jail, so they come to the jail and say, uh, please leave town quietly, and Paul says, not until I say goodbye to my buddies, and so he goes and says goodbye to Lydia and the rest of the church. Just an amazing story, and the reason I recap it for you is to make this point. Paul had paid a steep price for bringing the good news of Christ to the Philippians. Paul had loved these guys. And, and initially, that love had been reciprocated. The Philippians were fans of Paul. They, they were early financial supporters. They were dirt poor, but they, they began giving what, what money they could do his ministry. But, but that was years earlier. Now, now it's some time later, Paul is in another city, in another jail for the same reason, preaching Christ. But he hasn't heard from the Philippians in a really long time. I mean, there have been no checks in the mail. There have been no words of affirmation. And Paul's wondering, what's going on? Okay, one, one Bible scholar puts it, it this way. 
He says, for some unknown reasons, the Philippians, for an extended period of time, were cut off from Paul and he from them. As a consequence, doubts may have arisen as would only be natural about the genuineness of their concern for him. You follow that? I mean, if I had been Paul, I, I would have been sitting in, in, in the jail, you know, rehearsing all I'd done for the Philippians and what have they done for me recently? Nothing. I would have been playing the comparison game. And friends, friends, when we play that game, when we compare ourselves with others, it stirs up discontent. When we compare ourselves with others and we feel like, you know, like we've gotten the short end of the stick, that we deserve better treatment than what we've received, we deserve better remuneration, we deserve whatever, it always leads to discontent. You know, our coworker got the raise when everybody knows we do three, three times the amount of work that he does. Now, our neighbor just got a new sunroom for their house, and we had to use our household budget to replace the furnace. And our best friend is going on a Mediterranean cruise over the holidays, and we're going to the in-laws in Peoria. Sorry if you're from Peoria. You know, we got, a, we got a classmate at school. She never cracks a book, and she aces every course. And we live in the library, and we, we can't pass anything. See, we, we constantly play the comparison game and frequently conclude that we've been gypped. This, this isn't fair. leads to discontent. I came across an amusing uh, piece of news, the entertainment news, recently. A story about Jennifer Lopez. Uh, she was scheduled to star in an upcoming movie called The 33. It's supposed to come out sometime next year. It's about the 33 Chilean miners who spent 69 days underground, trapped underground back in 2010. And uh, J-Lo, uh, she had been brought on to play the sister of one of the miners. Well, according to this news story, while they were trying to cast other females to play the roles of wives and sisters and girlfriends and, and so on. Every time a, a beautiful girl applied for uh, one of the roles, J-Lo would take out her Sharpie and she would put an X. You know, don't want this gal, don't want this gal. And it became obvious she didn't want anybody as good looking or better than her. And I read this story and I thought to myself, this is just amazing, isn't it? Uh, she's a, a gorgeous woman, ought to be able to look in the mirror and be really happy with what she sees. And she is until she compares herself with others. And then she's discontent or worse. I mean, go back to the Apostle Paul. He had knocked himself out for, for the Philippians. And what had they done for him? They had left him sitting in jail with no support for, for how long? For weeks, maybe months? We're not sure, but it had been for a long time. And then the situation suddenly changed. A guy by the name of Epaphroditus showed up at Paul's jail cell carrying a financial gift from the Philippians. Now, friends, if Paul had been wallowing in discontent, we would expect a response from him something like this. Well, it's about time. <laughs> like, where have you guys been? All I've done for you, I was just expecting a little back for me. But that's not what we read. Look at the opening verse of today's scripture. Amazing words from Paul, verse 10. He says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord 
that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned. I know you were concerned. You just had no opportunity to show it. There are several interesting expressions in this verse I want to draw your attention to. The, the first is the word rejoiced. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord. This is one of those 16 references to joy or rejoice in the book of Philippians. Paul was no sourpuss. Paul was not sitting around in jail rehearsing all he'd done for the Philippians and the little they'd done for him. Paul was a happy camper. Paul rejoiced when he received their gift. In fact, it says here, he rejoiced greatly. See that word greatly? Bible scholars say only time in the New Testament where that word is used, greatly. Paul is looking for a really big word. I rejoiced immensely, immeasurably, hugely. You get the idea? He threw a party when he received their gift. And, and what, why was Paul so happy? Another word I want to draw your attention to. You see the word renewed because you renewed your concern for me? This is another word that only appears here in the New Testament. But it does appear in other Greek literature of the day to describe flowers in bloom. Now, now, now you got to get this. What, what, what Paul is so happy about is not the fact that he finally has some financial resources to meet his needs. No, he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about the Philippians. He's rejoicing because they're blooming. Their generosity is demonstrating the fact that, spiritually speaking, they're growing, they're flourishing. That gives Paul great joy. You know, when we compare ourselves with others, the focus is on us. Why aren't we getting what we deserve? Paul's focus was on other people, and he, he just rejoiced over the good things happening in their lives. You know, the last thing I want to note before we move on from verse 10, the second half of the verse is just unbelievable to me. Paul hasn't heard from them in such a long time, but instead of saying, well, why haven't you written? He says, I'm sure you were concerned. You probably had no opportunity to get a hold of me. You know, he reads the best into their motives. He doesn't know the reasons why they haven't written, why they haven't sent support, but he reads the best into their motives. When we compare ourselves with others, we have a habit of reading the best into our motives, the worst into theirs, right? Don't compare. See, when you compare with others, what you're doing is pitting yourself against them, which always leads to discontent. When you celebrate the good stuff, going on in their lives, whatever comes their way. Way to go. Yeah, that's great. You're showing yourself to be for them, and that leads to joy. Here's the second thing we learn from Paul's example here. You know, how do you banish discontent? Number one, don't compare. Number two, redefine needs. I put needs in quote because it's a word we love to use, but look at how Paul uses it in verse 11. Next verse, he says, I'm not saying this, thank you that is for your gift, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now don't you find it interesting that Paul says in this verse he's not in need? You say, wait a minute dude, you're in jail. What, what do you mean you're not in need? Of course you're in need. And to be fair to the text, I should point out that in the opening line of the very next verse, verse 12, Paul does admit, I know what it is to be in need. 
So, so it's not like Paul is oblivious to the needs in his life. It's just that he's sort of reluctant to use that word need to describe his circumstances. How different from us, right? We're tempted to use the word need to describe any and, and, and everything that we want. We call our wants our needs. You know, I need a new cell phone. Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Probably don't. You just want an updated version, right? Or where we say, I, I, I need to get into a particular college. Well, there are a lot of colleges you could go to. Or I need a more understanding spouse. I need a vacation. I need a good night of sleep. I need a raise at work. I need internet access. I need designer jeans. I, I need, I need, I need. There's a whole industry out there. It's called advertising that is meant to create needs in your life. That's their design, to show you what you need. I, I read an interesting statistic the other day. They say that the average young person, by the time they reach the age of 21, they have watched over one million commercials on TV. And so they now know what they need. And some of the things that advertisers convince us we need, they're pretty silly. In fact, I was watching an infomercial the other day. I thought I'd share it with you. Watch this. Oh no, what a mess. Introducing Laugh and Snack with a patented deep groove to keep the bowl secure and dual chambers to hold your favorite snacks. Use it in the living room or even the den. Made of space age polymers, it's virtually indestructible. Available in four designer colors emerald green, regal blue, canary yellow, and cherry red. Stop using ordinary bowls and get the snack bowl that stays the Laugh and Snack. Order yours today. You didn't know you needed a lap and snack, did you? You know, that last guy, he just needs some coordination is what he needs. Yeah. You know, now, sometimes the commercials are much more subtle than that. One of my favorite commercials used to be a, a, a tire commercial. I won't name the brand, but a very expensive tire. Now, how do they convince you that you need an expensive tire when you could go out, pay a lot less money for a very good tire? Well, they, they show this young mom, and she's driving her car on a lonely stretch of country road. It's dark, it's night, it's raining. She's got two kids in the back seat. What are the, the commercial, the advertisers, what are they telling us we need? Yeah, we need safety, right? We, we, we need to be responsible husbands and dads. What kind of a guy would send his wife out on a road like that with cheap tires? You know, you need expensive tires on your car for something like that. I need, I need, there's so much we need, and it just leads to discontent. A group of psychologists did an experiment not too long ago. They asked participants to write down five things every day, five things they didn't have, but they wish they had. Okay, for this day, you don't have this, but you, you wish you had this. Material things, relational things, whatever. Now, they tested this group at the beginning of the experiment to see how happy they were, and they retested them at the end of the experience. What do you think happened to their happiness? And it went right out the window. As they recounted day after day after day, this is what I need, this is what I need, this is what I need. So we, we've got to redefine our needs. Let me warn you, too, being the Christmas season, you're going to go shopping, and every store you're going to come out of Realizing there are some things you need that you don't have. 
So I'd say, take it easy on the shopping. You know, I know you go into the store for somebody else, but you'll come out needing something for yourself, guarantee. See, well, what we truly need is to redefine our needs as, as wants and then trust God to meet our genuine needs. Thank him when he does, which leads to our, our third insight from Paul. Learn gratitude. Go back to the text. Let me read Beginning at verse 11 again, I already read that, but I'll start there. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or in want. Now, there's something puzzling about the passage here that scholars have noted. What's puzzling is this. Every scholar recognizes the fact that Philippians is a thank you letter. That's somewhat unusual because if you know anything about Paul's New Testament epistles, most of them were written to confront some problem in the lives of his readers, but not Philippians. It's a rare letter. It's written to say thank you. Got your gift. Thanks a million. Only problem is, and this is the puzzling part, When Paul talks specifically about their gift here in chapter 4, he never uses the word thanks. Okay, He never says, thanks for the financial gift. In fact, one Bible scholar says this is a thankless thanks. We know it's a thanks note, but he never uses the word thanks. Why not? Bible scholars say, well, there are probably several really good reasons. One reason would be, Paul does not want to convey to them the thought that he's interested in more money from them. So, you know, kind of like a, you know, a fundraising letter here. So they send him a gift and he says, thank you, thank you, thank you. And it, you know, it's so effusive that they realize, oh, we should be sending more money. Other Bible scholars point out that while Paul doesn't say thank you for their gift, he does say thank you for you. Thank you for our relationship. If you've got your own Bible open on your, on your lap, go to the first chapter of Philippians, verses 3 and 4, when Paul opens this letter, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You know, maybe Paul didn't say thanks in chapter 4 regarding the gift, some scholars say, because he wanted to convey he's most thankful for them as people, friends. One final explanation as to why he was reserved in expressing his thanks for their gift is that Paul wanted to make it clear that he recognized God as the ultimate source of the Philippians' generosity. I mean, go, go back to the opening verse of today's text that I read to you earlier. Verse 10, it begins, I rejoiced greatly, say the next line with me, in the Lord, okay, in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Paul wanted to make sure that God got the credit for every good gift he received in life, even if it came through other people. Paul regularly expressed his gratitude to God. In fact, expressing gratitude to God was the secret, if you saw the word secret there. It's the secret of Paul's contentment in good times and bad times. Expressing gratitude to God was something Paul says in the text he had to learn how to do. 
Isn't that interesting? This is a learned behavior. Look at verse 11. He says, I have learned to be content. Verse 12, I have learned the secret of being content. So so being content results from gratefully recognizing God's generous provision in our lives, and that gratefully recognizing is a learned behavior. Being thankful and expressing that thanks is a learned behavior. Just finished a book that I, you know, I hope will mark my life. I read it because I thought I needed it. Uh, The book is called simply Thanks. Subtitle, How Practicing Gratitude Can Make You Happier. The book's written by Dr. Robert Emmons. Emmons has a PhD in psychology, teaches at the University of California, has spent his entire adult life researching, doing scientific research on gratitude. Dr. Emmons has concluded that gratitude is not primarily the result of a person's circumstances, You know, I'm not grateful simply because good things have happened to me. It's not primarily the result of a person's disposition. I'm not content just because I'm a, you know, I'm a contented kind of guy. It's not primarily the result of a person's willpower. So I'm going to be thankful. I'm going to be content. I'm going to be content. It's primarily the result of a person's practice. It's something that a person learns to do by the systematic cultivation of actually giving thanks. What's more, Dr. Emmons documents the fact that gratitude produces a wide variety of measurable benefits in a person's life. If you're a grateful person, if you learn to give thanks, you will receive benefits that are psychological and spiritual and emotional and relational, physical. So how do we learn gratitude? What are the practices that Dr. Emmons says we should systematically cultivate? Here's my summary of the 230-page book so you don't have to read it, although it's a great book if you'd like to. Two practices. Number one, he says we've got to recognize daily blessings in our lives. Okay, recognize the daily blessings in your life. The first experiment that he ever did as he began to research gratitude was this. had a large group of people, divided them into two smaller groups, he said to the first group, okay, here's your assignment. I want you once a week, I want you to get a journal, spiral-bound notebook, and I want you to write down five things that you're thankful for from that week. Okay, and then he turned to the other group and he said, this is your homework. I want you to get a journal. Once a week, I want you to write in the journal five things that really bugged you. I mean, they just went wrong this week. Okay, and they did this for 10 weeks, and then they compared the two groups. And what do you think they found? In the first group, just five things a week that they wrote down they're thankful for. They were a happier group, a more optimistic group, an energized group, a group that got good rest at night, a group that had good connections with other people. I mean, on and on the benefits went. And, and the lights went on in Dr. Emmons' mind, and he said, this is a good thing to teach people to do. And so he started teaching seminars about journaling. You know, recommending to, to, to people, whether it's every day or, or once a week, you, you write something down. This is what you're thankful for. He tells a story in his book of one lady who went home. Her husband hadn't been at the seminar, and she shared this with him. He, he had just lost his job, and he was a Mr. Grumpy Pants. He, he was a glass-half-empty sort of guy, and he wasn't looking for a new job because he was so discouraged. 
And she said, honey, let's do this. Let's write down three things a day. We'll keep a journal together. Three things we're thankful for. And they did it day after day after day. For three weeks, three weeks into it, he started looking for work. He felt energized. In fact, his friends started saying to his wife, like, what has happened to your husband? Like, this is a different guy. And he quickly found work. Now, I had someone say this to me after the service last night at our St. Charles campus. He, he said, you, you know, my wife and I began doing this a couple of years ago. Every night we got a journal where we write down three things for which we're thankful for uh, during the day. And he said, it, it works. It works. Practice gratitude by recognizing daily blessings in your life. Here's the second thing Dr. Emmons says you ought to do. Recognize the source. This is really important. Recognize the source of your daily blessings. That's what Paul's doing in Philippians. He's expressing thanks to some friends who have sent him a financial gift, yes, but more importantly, he's recognizing God as the source of their gift. God is the one who meets Paul's every need. And contrast Paul with Bart Simpson. This is not hard to do. When Bart was asked to pray for the meal at the family dinner table, this is what Bart prayed. Dear God, we paid for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. Amen. Unfortunately, even though we never express it like Bart Simpson did, isn't this how we view our blessings? I mean, if we, if we have food on the table, who put it there? We did, right? We went out, we got a job, we earned a paycheck, we cashed the check, we took the money to the grocery store, we shopped for food, we cooked the food, we put it on the, on the table. We have ourselves to thank. But wait a minute. Where, where did the intelligence, where did the health, where did the strength, where did the, the natural gifts that you use to do your work, where did all that come from? That, that would be God. God. G.K. Chesterton was a famous British writer in the early 1900s. One of my favorite writers wrote a series called the, uh, the Father Brown Mysteries, if you like mystery stories. But uh, G.K. Chesterton was known as a keen observer of life, wrote over 100 books, contributed to about 300 other books, 4,000 essays. Uh, somebody once noted that he had something to say about everything and said it better than anybody else. Okay, so that's G.K. Chesterton, a keen observer of life. And in his observations, he saw much to be thankful for. However, he had a problem. Here's his problem. He didn't know who to thank. G.K. Chesterton was not a believer. He'd grown up in a home without religious faith. So he's filled with gratitude. He doesn't know who to say thank you for. At the age of 48, G.K. Chesterton comes to know God through surrendering to Jesus Christ, and his life changed. Suddenly, he knew who to give thanks to. You know, the, the saying is, happiness is seeing a sunset and knowing who to thank. It's not just seeing the sunset, it's knowing who to thank. He had somebody to thank. And he became famous for his thankfulness. Every, every little thing. In fact, on one occasion, there's a, an amusing anecdote. On one occasion, he was writing a friend, and he spilled some ink on the paper. Now, most of us, you spill some ink, you say, dang, or something like that. This is what he wrote next to his ink block, block to his friend. I like the ink. It's so inky. 
He said, I, I do not think there is anyone who takes quite such fierce pleasure in things being themselves as I do. The startling wetness of water excites and intoxicates me. The fierceness of fire, the steeliness of steel, the unutterable muddiness of mud. And it's just the same with people. He looks around, and now that he's got somebody to thank, he says, oh, I can't stop thanking God for everything I see. That's the practice of gratitude. We have to learn it. Got to learn it. First, by recognizing the daily blessings in our lives, noting them, maybe keeping a journal, that would be good. And secondly, recognizing the source of those blessings. Fourth insight from Paul here. Number one, don't compare. You want to get rid of discontent? Don't compare. Number two, redefine needs. Number three, learn gratitude. Number four, depend on Christ. And I'm about to read you what I consider to be one of the most misinterpreted and misapplied verses in the entire Bible. Okay, so let me read it to you. It's Philippians 4, 13. You've seen it on a wall plaque, probably. Paul says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. The him here is Christ. I can do all this through Christ who gives me the strength. I hear people quote this verse all the time to support the notion that whatever they choose to do in life, God will give them the power to succeed. So if you're a business person trying to close a big deal, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. You'll close the deal. You'll make lots of money. If you're an NFL quarterback marching your team down the field with seconds left on the clock, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. You'll score the touchdown and win the game. If you're a single person looking for a mate, you'd like to be married, I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. God's got a husband. He's got a wife for you. See how this works? I, I myself have misused this verse. You know, one time rather amusingly, it's dated now, but back when Sue was in labor with our first child, with Emily. We were at the maternity ward, Delnor Hospital, and uh, the nurse had told Sue that she was almost fully dilated. She could begin to push, and she pushed, and she pushed, and she she'd been in labor for like a dozen, 15 hours, something like that. Long labor. No baby. And finally, the nurse came back in, and she said, you know, we're going to have to prep you for uh, Sue, not me. We're going to have to prep you for a, a C-section. And I looked at the nurse and I said, can, can we have one more shot at this? Which is easy to say if you're the coach and not the woman in labor, okay? <laughs> so the nurse said, okay, she, she left. And I said, come on, baby, we could do this. And Sue leaned forward and I put my hand in the middle of her back and I began to chant, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. <laughs> and Sue pushed and I pushed, almost pushed her off the bed. And out popped Emily. <laughs> this is a bad application of Philippians 4.13. Okay? What is the context of this verse? What, what has the Apostle Paul been talking about? He's been talking about being content in each and every situation of life, bad or good. He's been talking about practicing gratitude, whatever the circumstances. How does a person do this? Well, sure, we can be content in good situations. We, we, can be, uh, we can practice gratitude when everything is going our way. But what about when things are not so great? You know, what about when you lose your job? What about when your girlfriend dumps you? 
What about when the medical report is not good? What about when the traffic is, is gridlocked and you're late for work? Can you still be content? The Greek philosophers of Paul's day, they had an answer to this question. Before I give you their answer, I'm going to ask the worship team here in St. Charles and at other campuses to come out on the platforms. In just a moment, we're going to sing a closing song of worship. We're going to bring our gifts, our offerings to the Lord, which is one of the best ways to say thank you. To say thank you to God. But let me tell you about the Greek philosophers in Paul's day. This group, they were called Stoics. Okay, the, the Stoics, one of their favorite words was the word content. They believed you ought to be content in the worst circumstances of life. How, how do you be content in the worst circumstances of life? Their answer was self-sufficiency. You ought to be able to look in the mirror and say, nobody's getting me out of this mess but me. I can do it. Okay, I, I can suck it up. I can grin and bear it. The Stoics... They were the John Waynes of the ancient world. But I want to tell you something. Paul was not a stoic. Paul knew that he was going to face bad as well as good situations in life. He wanted to be content in either case. He wanted to practice gratitude in either case. But Paul knew that self-sufficiency was not going to get him there. But Christ could. And so Paul advocated, listen, Paul advocated Christ-sufficiency. Not self-sufficiency, Christ-sufficiency. Friends, when life hits the fan for you, which it may have in the, in the past week, when you're struggling with discouragement, when, when your body is racked with pain, when you're having a hard time counting your blessings because there don't seem to be any to count, when the bad guys are winning in your life, when you're so honked off at something, you feel like screaming or punching your fist through a wall, when you are faced with a dilemma and you have absolutely no idea what you're going to do, the answer is not self-sufficiency. The answer is not sucking it up. The answer is to cast yourself in total dependence upon Christ. The answer is to cry out, Lord Jesus, make me content in you right now. That's all I got. I got you. Show me what I can be thankful for in this situation. Help me form the words I don't want to say. Help me to form the words. Thank you. Express my gratitude to you. You depend on Christ. I can do all things through him who gives me strength, means in every and any and every situation of life. I could banish discontent with thanksgiving because Christ enables me to do so. You get it? Good. Today's killjoy is discontent. How do you overcome it? You don't compare. Okay, just stop doing that. Don't be against other people before them. Good things happen to their life. Rejoice over it. Redefine needs. Quit saying, I need, I need, I need. Stop yourself when you hear yourself saying that. No, I don't need that, actually. Learn gratitude. Now, consider keeping a journal for a number of weeks. Write in it once a week, three, five, three to five things you're thankful for. Tell God you're thankful for those things. And lastly, depend upon Christ. When you're in a difficult set of circumstances, say, Christ, only you can get me through this. Only you can give me words of thanks. 
Now, we're going to sing a song, one of my favorites, that talks about the 10,000 blessings, 10,000 reasons we have to thank God, to praise God, some good, some bad. Uh, We're going to begin collecting our our offering at our four campuses as we do this. So just stay seated for the first verse, and then the worship teams will ask you to stand. And then finally, the campus pastors will come out and close in prayer. Let's sing together.